one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The following podcast contains content some listeners may find distressing. If you find you are impacted by the issues raised, support is available at a number of places. Please refer to the episode notes for more details. You're listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this episode, I talk with Chris Dorr QC, barrister and author of Justice on Trial. I chat to him about his life's work in the justice system in England and Wales, what he has learnt, and what he believes we as a country should be doing to change things for the better. Hi, I'm Chris Dorr, a barrister, and I have just written a book called Justice on Trial, which tells everybody why our justice system is totally broken. We need to start all over again. And what led you into your career? Well, uh, a computer is the simple answer. When I was uh, 17 and I'd just done my first year of A-levels, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I went to the uh, College Career Centre and uh, even in, even uh, in the uh, late 1980s, they had computers, believe it or not, and one of them uh, had, was set up for you to fill in a careers questionnaire and you said what you like and don't like about work or life or general sort of uh, hobbies and so on. And then at the end, it printed out on a sort of old-fashioned printer, a piece of paper, and it told you what your career was going to be. And it told me that I either had to be a barrister or an actor. And they were my only two career options. So I then spent two weeks uh, watching uh, cases in the Crown Court and sat, sitting in the public gallery in the summer holidays. Um, and I just absolutely loved it. It was just like it was like being on telly, but it's real. So who, want, who doesn't want to do that? Like, lots of people want to be on telly, but you can be on telly, but it's actually real and people might go to jail, then, you know, it's, 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 it's even better. So, yeah, so I was hooked on it, basically. And, and acting uh, wasn't for me because I wasn't good enough. So, uh, but I was, I was all right at the law. So that, that and, and, and that was 34 years ago, 33 years ago. And so, you know, the computer was right, I guess. And can you remember, because I remember those formative years and sort of teenage years and also being sort of taken into the sort of justice world as a, as a career and feeling very um, emotional and passionate and all these different things about it. So what was it for you when you were sat in the courts before you ever thought you might end up as a QC? What were the sort of overriding emotions and feelings when you were kind of watching the theatre? It was a combination of two things. So the, the in inherent dramatic value of the courtroom and the trial experience, the fact that it culminates in a verdict. And, you know, that's why TV dramas so often use courtroom settings and legal settings, you know, as, as, the, as the main storyline, because there's an inherent drama to anything that has a binary outcome, either guilty or not guilty, and whichever way it is, there's a there's a dramatic kind of reaction from someone. So, you know, in a murder trial, for example, you've got the victim's family who are often sitting very close in the courtroom and you've got the defendant who's usually locked in prison for months and months waiting this verdict and you have his or her family as well there. And so that moment, that kind of, you know, when this foreman or the, or the, or the woman st stands up and says guilty or not guilty and then the, then there's this eruption of kind of you know or, or even like a release of nervous tension after they're shouting and screaming and sometimes you know people are very upset so there's an inherent drama and excitement of it but also combined with that because you can get that from other things like sport for example you know there's other things that have a kind of an exciting ending or an exciting outcome but the difference with the law is that that, that it really matters 
You know, if, if someone is found guilty of murder, they're going to spend decades in decades in prison, often from their early 20s into their 40s or 50s or beyond. And that's a huge impact. And likewise, you've got a family that may have waited years sometimes for, for what they see as being justice. And, and if someone's found not guilty of murdering their loved one, you know, they're going to have to live with that feeling of injustice forever. So it's just that the stakes are so high, but the process is, I mean, you couldn't, if you were trying to write a dramatic kind of storyline, the criminal trial would be the one you'd pick. But, but it wasn't created for that purpose, but it just inherently, it builds in so many points of drama. You know, when, when the main witness gives evidence or the defendant goes in the witness box and says, I didn't kill the person, I wasn't there, I was 200 miles away. You know, those moments of sort of vital drama and vital human interest. So, so I think I'm really fascinated by people, but I obviously love drama. So it's the best job. And did you find that sort of certain uncomfortable element in the court of the sort of voyeurism and you have someone that's potentially going to, you know, a hammer comes down and, you know, the judge says, take him or her down. And it's very dramatic and actually really upsetting, I find. And often the victim's family, as you say, sitting there. Did you ever feel that that was a slightly uncomfortable part of it or do you think it's actually an important part of it? One small factual correction, we don't have the gavels anymore, but on a serious point. So I defended in a murder trial at the Old Bailey, one of the first cases I did as a QC. And, and it, was a, it was a really horrible case. It was a young man who died uh, after a load of young people had been out and there'd been a, a fight and he had fallen to the ground and his head had hit the curb and he'd had a, a brain hemorrhage and an aneurysm and... and or, and died of uh, you know, catastrophic brain injury. And, and I was defending his killer, and, who, and the defence was self-defence. And the way that the court was organised at the Old Bailey, I had the victim, the deceased mother, sitting there, I mean, literally next to me, almost, I could, we could have touched hands, that's how close she was, because it's an old-fashioned Victorian court and it's all stacked up and there's very little room to move. And people are bigger now um, uh, than they were, I guess, when they built those courtrooms. So, I, so I, had, I had this woman who was grieving and who was, you know, desperately sad and having to listen as the post-mortem report is read out and as the, as the uh, you know, the forensic experts gave evidence about her son's injuries and so on and so on. And, you know, the, the, the brain pictures were shown, showing the blood in, in the brain and everything. And she had to sit through all of that. And I, was, I had to then make a closing speech to the jury to defend the man who'd killed her son while she sat there, I could hear her breathe, you know? So, so there is that human element to it. And, and I, you know, I've, I've been involved in many cases of sexual violence, you know, rape cases and in the most serious forms of child sexual abuse. And obviously, whatever the rights and wrongs of the case, whoever's guilty or not guilty, whatever's really happened, the, the, the inherent kind of sadness and tragedy around those cases is something that, that, that you can't avoid being, being uh, you know, receiving the impact from. And you, you, can't, you can't just, you know, walk into court, deal with a case of a child's, you know, serious se sexual abuse and go, you know, and, and none of that washes over you and none of it actually impacts you. So it does, it's, it's, a, it's a really emotional job. Has the emotion ever got the better of you? Not in the sense that it's overcome my professional judgment and my professional ability to do the job. But in the sense that, you know, when I've been asking witnesses questions, sometimes they are very deeply traumatized by events. So that they, may, may, they may be witnesses that I'm cross-examining, or they may be my own witnesses, including my own clients sometimes, if I'm defending, that, 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 that have a particularly tragic history. And, and you know, th and they become very emotional and tearful. And they break down sometimes. And, and, and that happens, you know, with relative frequency in, in criminal trials, that people, the whole experience and the history and the re relaying something that was deeply traumatic just comes all over them. And you can't help but kind of sometimes you just have to stop for a minute and take a deep breath. And, you know, because otherwise you would potentially sometimes as a person, I think I'm reasonably empathetic, is, you know, you would you know, kind of potentially have a tear in your eye. And, you know, I know it's just not something that you that you you can allow to happen. So, but but undoubtedly, you know, particularly with children and particularly uh, with very vulnerable people, when they give evidence about something traumatic, it is a, it's a very difficult thing to maintain composure sometimes. And so often the victim or the perpetrator are the same person, right? So the person in front of you might be the one that sort of you're defending, but it's actually they're the person who has potentially killed someone. But then I suppose you get their backstory. So you know that they have been victimised, 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 and it's culminated in a murder. 
So how important is it and how often do you have to balance that role of empathising and then having to actually sort of cut yourself off in order to do a professional job? Because it's so blurred. And I think that's something that sometimes the media doesn't particularly articulate very well. So actually, my job's much more straightforward than that, because I... I have a really quite simple task when I'm defending in a case, which might, you know, my practice is entirely defence work. Um, and that's simply to advance my client's interest in the case. So in other words, to put forward his or her defence. So where the emotional side of the case may be something I need to communicate to the jury, then of course I, I, I will do so. I will, you know, whether it's through questions or ultimately in my closing speech, and I do say to juries in my closing speeches sometimes, look, none of us in the courtroom, whether we be on the jury or, or, or the lawyers who deal with these cases every day, none of us are immune from the emotions of the case. But we must set those emotions to one side and, and deal with the case, in our case professionally, and in the case of the jury, dispassionately and objectively, and not be carried away by our emotions. And, and it's hard to do. So you have to recognise the emotions, but at the same time, as I say, I don't... I'm not there to sympathise. I'm not there to, you know, I mean, for example, if I have sympathy for a witness on the other side, I, I have to do my job just the same as if I didn't have that sympathy. I have to put my client's case, case to the witness. And in some cases, people who undoubtedly were the victims of serious crime, I have to suggest that, they, that they're lying and making it up. And, and I can't hold back from that out of sympathy because my reaction, emotional reaction to the witness is one of normal human empathy, I have to say, okay, that's, well, not say, but I, you know, undoubtedly I process in my professional life that side of the case, put it to one side and do my job. And my job, as I say, is a really straightforward one. How can I win this case within the professional legal rules that apply? So when you're being trained to become a QC and so you're going through the motions throughout your career, is there ever any training on actual emotional intelligence? Um, on being able to uh, understand your own emotions, because of course there's plenty of intelligent people out there, but whether they have emotional intelligence or not to sort of back it up. So do you get any of that training at all? You know, there might be people listening who want a career uh, similar to yours. Would you advocate for people having to sort of really think about this element quite carefully before they go into this career? It's a really interesting question. There are many criminal barristers who lack emotional intelligence, just as there are many people in life, as you kind of effectively alluded to, that, that may be intellectually incredibly uh, bright, but lack that emotional intelligence, that ability to empathise, to understand things from other people's perspective, um, and to process, you know, the different reasons why people may behave or feel or think a certain way. I have to say, I, I think I naturally am quite empathetic. And I think there's a certain proportion of, of us, uh, you know, in society who are naturally fairly empathetic. We've never, I've never been trained in it. Um, but I think for those, and, and I think it would be really useful. And, I, and, and to be honest with you, it's the first time anyone's even asked me the question, let alone suggested it as a, as a realistic course of action. Um, but I do think that understanding human psychology, understanding emotions, understanding what drives people, particularly on the extremes, you know, when, they're, when they are on the ragged edge of life, being able to appreciate things from, their, from others' perspectives makes me much better at my job than if I lacked those qualities. Um, but I think anyone who's looking to go into the, to criminal law as a career, uh, particularly if they intend to be involved in uh, cases that, that are at the extreme end, like murder and sexual violence and so on, um, I think you have to have emotional intelligence in order to do the job well. Um, and, um, you know, there, I'm, I'm sure, now you've mentioned it, I'm sure there is training available out there, whether it's specifically for lawyers or just more generally, um, but in relation to, to, to psychology and emotional intelligence for the for a professional career, um, but I th and I think it's something that people need to have very much in the forefront of their mind that the, that the job of a criminal lawyer, particularly a defence lawyer, but the job of a criminal lawyer is much less about what's written in the textbooks at university and much more about who, who, how you interact with with other people and your ability to read people and your ability to, once you've read them, to make use of that information in a way that is sensitive, but actually still productive in terms of the case you're, you're putting forward. So, I mean, it's a really interesting question. I, and and, and, and I, I have many, many times reflected on what makes me good at my job. And I think I am pretty good at my job. And I, and I think my ability to read people and understand and empathise with people is probably the number one thing that helps me to win cases above all of the other 
you know, 26 years of experience and the years and years at law school and all the rest of it. It's, 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 a, it's a people job, ultimately. And I think that's why I love it so much, because I love people so much. But I think there's another element, and maybe it's because I've been asked this question a lot. I don't know whether it's because I'm a woman who often is in male prisons. Um, I don't know what it is, but people say, you know, how do you leave it at the door? How do you see the things that you see and do the things you do and then sort of go home and sort of lead a normal life? And, you know, I, I can't remember who it was, but someone said to me when I was quite young and I was working in style women's prison in Manchester in Wormslow, um, and it's something around emotional protection, because you, of course, have been talking about how to empathise with other people, how to read other people. But actually, how do you protect yourself? How do you leave it at the door? How do you put on that invisible cloak of protection? And sort of it's almost like going into battle, isn't it? It's sort of gladiatorial when you're in the Crown Court in, in many ways. So what would you say about the emotional protection you put sort of around yourself in order to be a father to four children and a, and a good husband? I think you have to be prepared to give a bit of yourself to do the job well. And so, unfortunately, for, for, for others, perhaps around me sometimes, and, you know, and I'll be very frank about it, probably sometimes, sometimes my children, sometimes it does take it out of you. But if I didn't, wasn't prepared to, to, to give in that way, just going back to my, my, my career test thing, you know, if you think about an actor, a very different world, but actors actually have to be pre prepared to some extent to surrender a bit of themselves to a role or to a character that they're playing and, and sometimes get themselves into quite a difficult emotional place. And it doesn't have the same stakes and it's not in the same world that, that, that I operate in. But I think if you're going to do something really well, and, and you know, obviously your line of work as well, you, you, you kind of have to be prepared to accept that a bit of you is going to have to be given away. And it's going to, you are going to have to accept the impact of what you see in order to be good at what you do. And then when you come home, sometimes that's going to have drained you a bit. And you may not be able to just brightly wander around the kitchen, you know, making pizza and smiling and chatting. And sometimes that that's the way it is. And I, I have to go into my office and decompress or, 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 or go for a long walk or a run and decompress before I'm kind of almost fit to interact with people who are close to me. Um, but if, if, if I did my job in a way that didn't involve getting to that point... I don't think I'd be very good at it. And I don't think I'd enjoy it very much. And so it's it's one of those things where you have to have a supportive family environment in order to do any job that takes you to the extreme. You know, if you're a, if you're an explorer that wants to go and climb mountains, you know, and be disappear up mountains for three or four months a year, you've got to have a pretty understanding home, home environment. Otherwise, you couldn't do that job. So I think there's loads and loads of jobs where you have to make sacrifices. And and, and sometimes those close to you have to make sacrifices too, whether whether almost whether they like it or not, because because if, if they weren't prepared to accept, you know, me or you the way we are, then we wouldn't be who we are. So, you know, it, it's a circular kind of um, circular kind of argument, isn't it, in a sense? Um, but I, I'm at peace with that. And, and if I wasn't, as I say, I'd find something else to do. One of the things I've always been fascinated in is how lawyers, barristers, QCs, because I'm going to be honest, I sometimes get confused as to what the difference is between every, you know, all the different uh, sort of terminologies within the sort of court world, because I'm more prison world than community world. But how do you, when you know someone is guilty, how do you then stand up and say, I'm going to defend this person? Well, I've acted for people who were accused of the most horrendous crimes, including, you know, brutal sex murders, uh, including, you know, long-term serial sexual abuse uh, of young children, including babies. Uh, and, and so I've kind of, I've acted in the cases that perhaps are the, the, the kind of case, I guess, that people are thinking about uh, when they ask that question. And, and we do get asked that question. And the answer is actually... I, because I believe fundamentally in the, the system and, and that, we, that we have to have a fair and, and, and just uh, criminal process, um, and because I really kind of believe in the, way, in, the, in the principles that lie behind my job, you know, there are professional ethical rules about what you can and can't do. I mean, you can't make up a defence for a client. If a client tells you they're guilty... You're not allowed to go to court and try and advocate that they're not. I mean, there are all sorts of rules that kind of preserve my integrity when I go to work every day. Um, and so ultimately, when you ask, the, the question was premised um, on, on the proposition that I know that they are guilty. And the only way you know someone is guilty in the true sense of the word is if they tell you that they're guilty. And clients never do that unless they intend to plead guilty. And of course, if someone 
tells you they're guilty and says, I want to plead guilty, there's no problem. Most people would understand, well, that's your job then to mitigate and try and, and, and try and advocate for the most lenient possible sentence. So actually, I don't think there is a difficulty, provided I go to work, do my job and, and do it professionally and properly. I feel like I'm helping in some way to uphold a really important part of our society, which is a functioning and fair justice system. You know, and I say this to juries in every criminal trial, particularly those trials where, you know, you, I might have a client who's admitted doing you know, things that are morally reprehensible, but says, but I'm not guilty of this particular crime. And so I often have to say to juries, you know, you, 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 you've got to be able to separate your kind of, you know, your instinctive revulsion of the person or, or maybe their conduct, their behaviour, and focus on whether the legal test is met for a conviction, whether, the, whether there's been evidence to prove the crime beyond reasonable doubt. And that's, to me, provided I do my job properly, I, I sleep very well. I think I'd, I, would, I would struggle to sleep at night if I soft-pedalled a client's defence because I believed he was guilty or she was guilty. Right. If I did that because of my personal opinion, I'd really struggle to sleep at night. So then, OK, take an example where bodies have been found in an individual's house. Well, I've done cases where people have been found in very compromising situations and it looks incredibly strong. The evidence looks very strong until some other piece of evidence emerged to show that actually their improbable defence turned out to be true. For example, there's some CCTV footage that's found that puts them five miles away from the scene at the time of a crime, which all the other, other evidence, including seven eyewitnesses, suggested they were there and they did it. And yet, when we, when we come down to, when we've actually scrutinised the case and, and done our job professionally and properly, it turns out not to be the case. But the, other, the other thing is, even if someone's committed the physical act of a crime, and I gave you the example of the murder case at the Old Bailey, you know, my client was acquitted because the jury accepted that he acted in self-defence. So the jury accepted he was attacked by the deceased, defended himself, and in doing so, the, vic the deceased sadly fell to the ground and, and, and banged his head and died. So, so I'm representing an innocent man who admits that he killed someone, but the law says that you can kill someone in self-defence, provided it's reasonable force and provided it's proportionate to the attack. And, and there are other, many other lines of defence. Even if someone's found in a, you know, with a room full of dead bodies around them, of course, the, the prosecution has to prove that they're, they're of sound mind. And many, many people in cases of that nature are psychiatrically disturbed and therefore you have defences such as insanity so or, or lack of intent. So, so just because on the face of it, if you took a picture, the person's got the bloody knife in their hand and that's, you know, obviously they're guilty. The law is not that simple. The law does, does involve consideration of what's in someone's mind and why they did it and their motives. Um, and so, you know, you often, for example, many of these cases, you have, you know, women who are the victims of long-term abuse who may commit an act of violence or even kill someone, but the law will give them a defence, either to murder, so that it's manslaughter, or potentially they might be not guilty on the grounds of self-defence. So just, just because the bare facts of the case look simple and straightforward doesn't mean the law will see it the same way. And that really brings me back to my point that I made a minute ago. So I've got to do my job regardless, regardless of what it looks like, regardless of what my belief is about it. I have, I mean, of course, I tell my clients, if I think they've got no defence, I'll tell them that. I'll say you're wasting your time. The jury's going to convict you. You need to try and you need to plead guilty, and we need to try and get mitigate the sentence. But they don't have to listen to me. If your client pleads guilty, then just so the listener understands, if they don't have a sort of great knowledge of the law, if someone pleads guilty, that means their sentence is reduced. They will get a discount, as we call it. Um, I suppose most people would call it, um, but they will get a discount. And, and generally speaking, someone pleads guilty right at the very beginning. So in other words, at the police station, they're arrested and they say, yes, I committed the crime. And they go straight to court and they plead guilty. They will normally get one third discount on the sentence they would have got if they pleaded not guilty and took it all the way to a trial and got found guilty by a jury. So, ob you know, obvious example, if it would have been nine years in prison after a full trial process, but they plead guilty right at the start, then they'll get six years instead um, for the same crime because they pleaded guilty. And that's the system is incentivizing people to make early admissions uh, if they've committed the crime um, and, and, and to plead guilty to reduce the cost to the system and to reduce the trauma and impact on victims. Because, you know, one of the main reasons for that discount is to encourage people to avoid putting witnesses through the experience of giving evidence at trial 
if the person is in fact guilty. Uh, and, and so there has to be an incentive, otherwise no one would ever plead guilty. And that's the right. incentive. And, and that gets lower and lower. So if someone pleads guilty on the day of the trial, then the, then the, then the theoretical discount is 10% of the sentence rather than one third. So that, the, the longer it goes on before someone makes an admission, the longer the sentence will be for the same crime. Okay. When I was in, I think, my early to mid-20s, I predominantly worked with uh, male life sentence prisoners. So um, as you obviously are well aware, it was usually people um, who had killed and uh, many male murderers. And people would say to me, yeah, but, you know, murder's murder. And so then would ensue a sort of heated debate um, where I would say, well, so someone who presses the button on the electric chair, does that make them a murderer? Someone who has had their daughter raped or attacked and they go out and then kill someone. And then people go, oh, gosh, you know, I suppose it is all a bit different. Do you often have those debates with people? Well, it is nuanced. And yes, I do have that. You know, yes, you're right, particularly on social media, where people's views can be very binary and simple and often quite antagonistic. People do have that opinion that, you know, life means life or should mean life and, you know, throw away the key and murder is murder. But you're right. Every single case that comes before the criminal courts, there's, there is some individual nuance to the case and some feature of the case which distinguishes it from every other case, which is why... We do have a mandatory life sentence for murder, but the minimum term that someone serves changes depending on the circumstances of the case. So the more the more inherently horrific the murder is, um, you know, if it's a multiple murder of children, for example, or, or, or the murder of police officers in the line of duty, there are a whole range of features of murder cases that that take them the scale up to the point where, for example, terrorists who, who, who commit mass murder will generally receive a whole life tariff. So they'll never be released from prison. They'll spend the whole of their life in prison until they die. Whereas someone who commits a murder in the spur of the moment and, and it's a sort of one-off incident and they have no history of violence, they're likely to spend, you know, on average now, actually it's gone up to an average of about 20 years for murder. It used to be much lower in the period that you're talking about when they would on average be doing 12, 13 or 14 years. Um, but there are, still, there are still those who commit murder who will be out in 12 or 13 years. But that will be because the circumstances are inherently less objectively grave than for those extreme cases I was talking about, which justify in law, a whole life sentence. So that every, every crime, in my experience, has, a, has a, a spectrum from the least serious version of that crime, and that includes murder, to the most serious version of that crime. And that's why the amount of time that someone spends in prison varies depending on the nature of the case. Okay. And in your brilliant book, Justice on Trial, you give many really good sort of real life examples of people who've been caught up obviously in the law one way or another, but you often sort of say that you were left wondering after a big trial, someone goes to prison, the dust settles and you're slightly left wondering, has this changed anything at all? Well, I'm not sure, in the end, I'm not sure I was wondering, as, as opposed to answering the, my own rhetorical question with no, nothing changes. So. I think one of the examples I give in the book is a sort of major conspiracy case, and you, you know, and, and, and I won't give it away, but but either the, either my client in that case was acquitted or he wasn't, um, and either way, he either went to prison for a very long time or he didn't. Um, and the point I try to make in the book is it doesn't matter either way; the world carries on spinning the same, you know, and the drugs keep flowing. However many drug dealers you lock up. You know, and you and and actually, and you know, it's really quite a, a, a an admission, I guess, on my part that, that that I really am saying most of what I've been doing for the last twenty six years is a total waste of time, and most of what I've been involved in has been a total waste of time because it's achieved nothing. The, the net sum of every trial I've ever been involved in is that there is there will be no fewer crimes as a result. There will be no more human happiness as a result. There might be some short-term happiness because the verdict's gone one way or the other. But the overall net kind of benefit to society, I think, is actually is, is negative. It's a disbenefit that we have criminal justice systems which don't produce justice in, in any broad or real sense um, and, and in the long run actually lead to more and more crime in our society and more and more human misery. 
So, so what's the point of a system like that? And that's that's ultimately it was coming to that really quite stark and and quite worrying and depressing conclusion that led me to write the book in the first place, so that other people could see that you know they assume it's this shining light of justice and that we you know it all works out very well. I don't know if people assume that or not. Uh, most people actually moan about the system for one reason or another, but but it actually is a it's a it's a really bad system that works really badly for our society, and that's what the book is uh, trying to point out. And is that do you think why? Um, I mean, obviously you said that's one of the reasons that you wrote the book, but also you've sort of presented documentaries and you've done um, a lot of interviews on radio and television, some recently. Do you feel that that's an element of your job now you're having to do in order to compensate? So actually, because you've almost sort of shifted into the sort of educating of the public arena, which is so, so important. Well, I think it is because I think that the, the public don't understand the way the system works. I mean, I read so much misinformation in the press you know, I, I was interviewed, you said I did a media interview last week and I had a journalist saying to me, but the headlines say this about justice. The headlines say that the, you know, this sentence was ridiculously low. Or, or, and, and I said, but, but the, set, the headlines are not what happened in the court. You've got to understand. And I, th I think one of the reasons for, for doing interviews like this and for, and for writing a book, and as you say, making some TV programmes and so on about, about the system, is so that I can at least try in a very small way to, 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 to put the record straight. You know, we're lucky in what, you know, recently we have this, we've had the secret barrister who's written a, a book, which is a really important book about, you know, what's going on in the courts and giving people a really good view of what's going on in the courts. And then, you know, there's my book and there are a number of other books which have recently come out, which are, which give, take people inside the courtroom. But, but, you know, the reality is that only so many people read books uh, and much many more people watch television or, 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 or are on social media and, 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 and follow podcasts and so on. Um, so, yeah, I don't, know, I don't know, I wouldn't call it a job necessarily, but it's a passion of mine to communicate the truth about what's going on and if people can get some kind of insight from that and perhaps ultimately you just you, you know you never know it's the butterfly effect isn't it you know if i if i if i kind of keep saying the the, the truth about what i've seen every day and what, what i've witnessed then maybe one or two people listen you know and i am very fortunate because of some of this activity i've been invited to come and uh, address a number of mps and you know so i so, so i get the opportunity to interact with people and, and some of the most more senior officials in the criminal justice system have invited me in for sort of coffee and for a chat and to kind of talk some of this stuff through. And so who knows if you can just tilt the, the, the oil tanker a tiny bit sometimes. I know you've done the same in your line of work within the prisons, you know, to try to, if you just make small differences somewhere, then it's better than nothing is my, is my uh, uh, kind of attitude to these things. Just shifting back into the courtroom again for a moment, I sat through the judge summing up the trial of Harold Shipman, the doctor who was, I think, uh, safe to say, killing old ladies and changing their wills in order to benefit from it. And he ended up killing, I can't remember how many. It was a really, really, really big case. And I was about 15 years old. I was very lucky to be able to sort of sit there and watch it all happening. Um, and then I've sat in courts where you've got you know, young people in the dock, you've got a judge sitting there who's, you know, a middle-aged white man with a wig on his head. And I remember sitting there thinking, oh my God, this is like Martian land meets some other, you know, I mean, it was just crazy. And that was when I was really young and looking at things through a completely untainted view. I was like, this is mad. And those two young black lads who were in the court at the time just didn't understand. I didn't understand a word anyone was saying in the courtroom. They certainly didn't understand a word. And then, bang, this enormous thing's happened to them and poof, their life has gone up in smoke. So what do you think about sort of all of that? Because I know so much of it is ceremonial and it's traditions. I think it can be intimidating for many, the environment. We've, we've made some strides to try to have witness orientation sessions so that Vulnerable witnesses can come and see the courtroom. And obviously we use things like video link technology and pre-recording of evidence in sex crime cases to try to put witnesses at ease. But, but there's no doubt that it's an intimidating environment. And, and I think one of, the, one of the things that's really important is that we should be seeking to uh, change the way we use language in the courts, because often the language is technical. The language is intimidating. And I, you know, I, I, I come from a sort of very ordinary background and kind of grew up just just with none of that in my life. And, and, and so 
I think that's a, that's an advantage to me in many ways because I hope I can speak fairly plain English, and I use plain English particularly in jury trials um, because let's be honest, it's much more you know accessible for for the people who are listening, and much more persuasive if people can actually understand what you're talking about. And I have sat through some of my colleagues' speeches. I'm not saying mine are all perfect by any means, but I sat through some of my colleagues' speeches and and summings up as you say from from the judge. And I've watched the jury in a in clearly in a state of complete incomprehension, just having no idea what, what, what on earth the person is talking about. And I'm sitting there looking around thinking, are they going to notice that the jury is either nodding off or scratching their heads or looking at each other going like this, you know, which you know happens frequently. And they don't. And it's that, and, you know, and, and, and that is wrong. I mean, if, if, the, if the jury and witnesses and, and, witness, and, and, and those who have come to watch even in the public gallery can't follow what's going on, then the system is not working properly. There are similarities when you think about it with uh, presenting uh, television documentaries about subject matter that's potentially complicated. And the best presenters communicate complex uh, subject matter in an accessible way, in a way that everybody relates to. I mean, David Attenborough, of course, is the, is the prime example uh, of all time of someone who manages to communicate things in a way that is both multifaceted, complex and interesting, but also completely accessible to everyone at the same time um and 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 we we do we do have to do that if we're going to do our job well but but the but the phenomenon that you've just described of people walking into the courtrooms from outside uh, who've never been in one before and just feeling that the whole thing is completely alien and they have no idea what's going on they don't understand what's being said is quite common and it's a real shame and I, th I actually think that the plain english society should come in and and i've thought this a number of times go through the judges summing up in the standard manuals and say you can't talk like that because people are not going to understand what you're talking about rip it all up and write it in a way that is plain english accessible um, and, and and you know and allows everybody to understand what's going on but often that's sadly not the case uh, hopefully not from me and it's uh, mainly out of self-interest, because if I talk in a load of gobbledygook, no one's gonna, I'm never going to win a case. Exactly. And how important do you think it is that um, sort of courtrooms are representative of the people who are sort of coming into them? And I know there's sort of been criticism about, you know, ethnicity and diversity um, sort of within the sort of judges. Um, so when cultures and ethnicities collide in the, in the courtroom, do you think that's all sort of dealt with well, or do you think there's room for improvement? On the whole, it's not dealt with that well. I, th I think that the, that, the, that the system isn't very uh, balanced, uh, whether it be at judicial level, whether it be at the top level of the legal profession, and particularly amongst QCs in court. Um, I think that there is, a, there is often a very significant social, cultural, and class imbalance, an educational imbalance, between the various bits of the machine. So, so on average, the jury will be from, a, from much more ordinary backgrounds than on average are the judges. Uh, and, and life experiences will be very different. Um, and so I do sometimes sit and listen to judges talking particularly about young people, about the way that they behave and live and think it is so patronising and you, you really have no idea about the community and the lifestyle of those who are in the court in front of you and the way that they sometimes pass sentence as well is, 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 is really just doesn't reflect reality. You know, and I talk about in the book, I talk about one example of a, a, of a man called Gethin Jones who, who went through the, the criminal justice system as a, from the care system into the criminal justice system. And he had a judge tell him at the age of 20 that he was a worthless professional criminal. He'd never amount to anything, wouldn't even be a gas fitter and so on. And, and, and that's, because you know, because that judge had a very limited understanding of what it meant to be a young man in the care system from 13, 14, and the and and, and be subject to abuse and all of the other things that had happened to him. So I do think that there's a disconnect between those who make decisions and those upon whom the decisions are visited in terms of their consequences. Um, and I think I think it, I think it would be a better system if it were one, not just where we communicated more plainly, as I said a minute ago, but where those who are, um, you know, in professional capacities and making important decisions had a much, it doesn't mean you have to come from a particular background to understand it, but you do have to understand it. And, and therefore, I think judicial training could be very different. I think it would be 
it will be and, and likewise lawyers training that if you're going to be a criminal lawyer you need to have spent some time i think in a number of different environments and we're never taken into prisons you know we go to prisons to visit clients but we don't we don't understand what prison life is like i mean i've only been into the sort of the, the cells uh, and the sort of the cell block sides of prisons as a result of the media work i've done yeah i've met many criminal lawyers who have never been into a prison and i find that absolutely Astounding. I agree. They won't have been into the into the wings. They won't have seen the, the you know they won't have seen how, how it works. Now I have, as I say, but only relatively recently, as a result of filming for the BBC in in, in, in prisons and, and visiting prisons for research trips for the book in in America, for example. Um, but I agree with you. I th I think I think it's insane that we're we're not all taken for orientation of the. You know, if you're going to practice in London or Manchester or wherever. And, and you, you know, you're going to be dealing with people who are going to be sent to prison. One of the things you often get asked by someone after their sentence, what's going to happen to me next? What's it like? And, we, and you know, I have a reasonable experience for many, many years and that obviously mostly secondhand. But the truth is we don't know. And, and many, often you say, I just don't know. You'll have to find out when you get there. Now, I don't think that's a very helpful. I don't think it's very helpful. And particularly when it comes to judges. I think that if you're going to sit in judgment and send people to prison, you should know the ins and outs of what, what goes on when, when they get there. You should know if the local prison is massively overcrowded. You should know the consequence of that. You should know if the education system has been shut down completely in the prison, as we, as we know is happening often at the moment. You should know all this stuff, and you should know it from first-hand experience of seeing it in, in the real world. The truth is that, you know, I, th I think it would be useful if every judge had to spend a few days in prison. I don't mean exposed to violence and risk, obviously, but, but to actually experience the environment, there should be a training wing, you know, and send lawyers and judges, and they could spend a few days living in those conditions and, and make it as realistic as possible. But, of course, I think it would also be very important important for them to spend time in the youth estate, the female estate, and the male estate, because they are all exceptionally different places. And there's um, a page in your book where it states that um, the youth offenders system at the minute in the youth estate has never been more dangerous and out of control as it is today in 2020. And that is a really horrific, sobering thing to read, even though I knew it. And many of us who work in the system know that, but every time I see it written down and I'm reminded of it, it just really, really um, makes me mad. Yeah, and it's shocking, isn't it? Because that section of the book, when I'm ta I talk about obviously some of the really horrific things that have happened in young offenders institutions over the years, but, but, but the numbers in young offenders institutions have fallen. But during the period the overall numbers falling, the number of violent incidents, attacks, assaults, self-harm, et cetera, have gone through the roof. In, not, not in percentage terms, but in absolute terms. So the rate of violence and the rate of suicide and the rate of self-harm is off the chart higher than it was five or ten years ago. So we're sending ch children or vulnerable young people into environments that we as a society control and allowing them to be attacked or to, or, or to be placed in a position where they're so vulnerable that they end up self-harming or killing themselves in record numbers. And, 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 you know, this is one of the things, this is sort of the gut-wrenching kind of reactions that I have to something that I see as being completely unjust, is that any society that can't care for its young people and its children doesn't deserve to be called civilised. And when we, and by that definition, we are not a civilised society. I completely agree, because one of your chapters, of course, is why children are never criminals. And I always sort of say in, in my line of work, when you see a child that might be very violent or might have done something horrific, just know there's lots of adults around that child who have failed to keep that child safe. You know, the truth is that, the, that, that you know, there are children who are born into environments, whether it be a family or, or, or straight into the care system, who have a history of generational failure. So that not just their parents are either not around or maybe in prison or maybe incapable of providing care or choose not to in some cases, but grandparents and beyond. There's just no, they have no experience of a, of a supportive um, a family unit of any kind or a supportive living environment of any kind. And that, when that happens, 
again, in a civilised society, we have a care system. I mean, and, and, and the, uh, the fact that it's even called a care system is really, to me, is quite perverse because, because it's so poor at caring. Where parents fail in a civil civilised society, and I say, I don't mean that pejoratively, because many parents who fail, fail because they themselves have got mental health problems or all manner of other issues or health issues which make it impossible for them to function effectively as a parent. But when that happens, a wealthy society such as ours must step in and provide adequate care and support and we're legally obliged to do it by the un charter on the rights of the child and we don't and i point that out in the book we are failing every day to honor our obligations in international law and in common basic morality to care for children uh, who are who are who, who are the ward of the state and and and, and that's that's a really shocking and horrific uh, uh, thing to have to grapple with so socio-economically, would you say that we are very good at locking up our country's poor? Well, we, we, we historically are. I mean, we're good at it because we keep doing it. That's what I mean. So, you know, I'm very struck. So 20 years of sort of being in and out of prisons the whole time. And this comes back to something that you said earlier about the fair and just justice system. And it's important that justice is done and it's administered in a, a fair and just way. And I sit here thinking, well, if I get myself into trouble, I have the money to get a good lawyer. So I have much better access to justice. And I'm very unlikely, probably, for that reason, to go to prison. So therefore, the people who don't have the money for a good lawyer or access now to legal aid, they do not have the same access to justice. So is it fair and just? Because I don't think it is. It's not. I mean, let's, let's be honest. It's always been that way to a degree. So, uh, and, and it's a relatively short period of our history when legal aid defence, so that, that, you know, anybody who, no matter what their means, could obtain a legal aid defence that was, that was pretty close to what's available to, to people who can have a, a sort of a, an unlimited budget to defend themselves. For, for a period probably of about 30 years, I think that was the case, from the sort of maybe from the early 1980s, uh, to round to about the around 2007 eight, it was pr it was pretty it was it, you know there there wasn't a, the percentage difference in sort of outcomes if you like between those who had legal aid defences paid for by the state and those who paid privately that the margin you know of advantage for the rich came down and down and down because the legal aid budget was substantial and individual cases were well funded for a period of time, particularly in my early career in the mid 90s and for, for, for a number of years. But that's only a short period of history. I mean, for every other period of history prior to that and since 2008, when the austerity rounds came in and justice received the largest percentage cut of any department, 40 percent uh, in net in, in cash terms. So obviously in real terms, even, even much bigger. Um, but but apart from that period, you know, it's always been the case. And it is really the difference, I think, has ne I won't say never because it's easy to use the words never, but, but going back, I think you'd have to go back 100 years or so before the, dis the disparity between the, the justice or the, or the legal representation that's, that's given to the poor was so different to what's available to the rich. And my client, many of my clients are rich. Many of my clients have you know, the money for a sort of unlimited budget type defense. And, and, and it, it is the difference between driving around in Rolls Royce and, and, and riding around on a rickety old rusty bicycle. And, and that's how far apart. The, the, the quality of legal representation. I mean, legal aid lawyers can have 200 live files uh, and, 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 and not be able to glance at the file. Half or two thirds of those files, they won't even look at until the day of the trial. So the idea of going out and finding witnesses, going out and interview, you know, finding expert witnesses who can give evidence about DNA or some other aspect of the case. I mean, that's virtually disappeared from legal aid defense. Uh, in, in all but the most sort of serious and complex cases, and those are underfunded as well. So most people, I think, are almost driven to to, to plead guilty even when they're not because they just don't fee feel like they're going to get any kind of fair defence. Uh, I think people will be shocked. Uh, and the number of people now who don't even qualify for legal aid, who don't get a lawyer at all because, because they earn more than a very relatively modest amount, they just won't qualify, even if they're accused of a crime by the state. They do not qualify for legal aid. And those who pay for their defence, who are forced into paying for their defence, even if they win, they don't get their money back. So it, 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 you're right, it's never been worse to be a poor person.
person charged with a crime. I, I'll just finish on this on that topic. So I remember going to the, the US in the uh, mid-90s, it was about 1996, seven, and I visited some American friends, and I was a relatively newly qualified barrister then. But it was in that period that I just talked about, when actually you could still get a really good defence, even if you were poor. And I had Americans saying to me, oh, you know, if you're poor here, it's terrible. You get the public defender, and, you know, they, they've got hundreds of cases, and they've got no time for you. And I said, you know what? I'm really proud of our system in England, because it's not like that. You know, a, a homeless person commits a murder in London. We'll get a top QC who will do the trial properly and defend them properly, and the solicitor will have the time to do the case properly, even though they're homeless and they have no money, they don't even have somewhere to live. And the Americans are like, oh, that's, it's totally shocked. They can't believe it. That, that's not how it works here. Well, we now have what they had then. We've hit reverse, it feels, because I also grew up sort of being told and hearing that we had a justice system that was sort of the gold standard, all hail the great British justice system. So how important do you think it is that our government doesn't break international law? Uh, I think it's really important that the government doesn't break international law. Uh, and, 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 you know, they're obviously intent on doing so over, over uh, Brexit at the moment uh, and, and really couldn't care less about, about whether they do or not. Um, and that's a very worrying trend from, a, from an international relations point of view, apart from anything. Uh, once you have a reputation as a nation for not honouring your uh, treaty commitments, uh, just as if you, for example, default on debts, you know, once you default on international obligations, then you, it's a slippery slope towards international oblivion and becoming a rogue state. Um, uh, sadly, the, our obligations, for example, to children in the criminal justice system and elsewhere and in the care system, which we've been routinely breaching and do routinely breach every day, nobody seems to care about that. I know, I do also wonder about that a lot. You know, on my travels in and out of these prisons like you, you see these policies, these laws that are put in place uh, to protect children and other individuals constantly being breached or overlooked, maybe accidentally, maybe on purpose, I wouldn't like to judge, and nothing ever happens about it. Now, why is that? It's because of the cuts that I mentioned. I, I, there's also a cultural element to it, I think. But... Yeah, because this was before the cuts as well. So more recently, of course, we know that prisons are often understaffed, that training has gone out the window, um, that, the, that the private sector have come in, in many cases, uh, and, and operate prisons in a way that's suboptimal from a sort of a, a welfare point of view. Uh, and from an outcomes point of view. But I think there is a historical culture, and this is what concerns me, and, and the, book, the chapter in the book about prisons, you know, about why we shouldn't really have them in their current form, is it, it, really building on that. And the culture has been, let's not really worry too much about why we're doing it and what's coming out of it, but let's just do it, because that's how we do it. And I think we've always historically just had a really poor record um, at uh, running our prison environment and running our criminal justice system in a way that, that, that focuses on outcomes as opposed to process. So there's a set of rules, there's a set of process, and we've always done it this way. And, and I think lots of elements of our public affairs work like that. You know, however ludicrous it seems to do things a certain way to an outsider like you when you go to prisons or, or, or even me when I go into prison environments, you know, as an outsider, it's just how it's done. And so we carry on doing it that way. And, and you know, and, and, and inertia when it comes to change, I think is probably the most common features of public life, of public affairs, is that, you, you know, we run our politics and our, our parliament, our government, our ministries, our, our entire kind of infrastructure, the NHS even. We run it largely because that's how we run it, not because someone with a global kind of view and, and a really kind of incisive and clever approach who's light and nimble on their feet and can think laterally is saying, hey, this is this is the way we should do it. And so, you know, that, I, I guess I've tried to be that person and say, look, as far as criminal justice is concerned, we're getting it all wrong. I mean, all of it's wrong. I mean, I, I, the book's not about the court system and about the many, many faults with the, the trial system and the lack of resource. The book's not about that, as you know. The book's about the bigger picture stuff about prisons and drugs and children. Um, but but it, it's so obvious to me that we're getting these things so wrong um, and, and that I have to, that's why the chapter headings are quite simplistic. That's um, another thing that I really liked about the book is you concentrate on the why, and the why is really important. So if listeners, for example want to know why we should close all prisons, then they should read your book. 
the next chapter, why we should legalize drugs, read the book, why children are never criminals, read the book, and finally, why people are neither good nor evil. And actually, you present solutions. And so often we hear people banging on about what's wrong and no one ever coming up with a solution. Um, so it was actually sort of really uh, quite a nice change to read something that sort of said, well, this is why we shouldn't do something. And actually, this is what we could do instead. So I would certainly urge um, all of our listeners to go out buy the book. So would I. I think, I, think, <laughs> I think it's their public duty to do so. Exactly. With Christmas coming up, it'd be a great jolly read over the christmas uh, break it's got elements of the novel about it some of it i ho hope you agree you know there's lots of the stories in there are just stories i mean they happen to be true but um but actually there, there is lots in there that people would, will just appeal to people who are interested in crime and interested in you know what makes a criminal tick yeah and, and interested fundamentally in human beings which i am and i notice a lot in your book you mention the word that isn't mentioned very often when people are discussing the criminal justice system is the word human and humanity. And I think that's so important. And it's something I always try to sort of remember to come back to on a daily basis in my work. You know, we are dealing with human beings and we're dealing with feelings and we're dealing with families. And I think as soon as you get complacent about that and move away from it, then then you're sort of in deep trouble, really. Yeah, and you need to have passion in everything that you do, because, you know, once something becomes a process, you know, I've often thought of the prison system as just as a sausage factory, except that you don't you don't even get any sausages. So at least a sausage factory produces something worthwhile. But I mean, pr pr prisons are just ju are just miserable places that achieve and produce nothing because because they're just a process, and people are literally numbers. I mean, they're given numbers, the prison numbers, and they become numbers that go from you know reception uh, through to a wing. And then they might be allocated to a different prison. They might, you know, but you're just moving numbers around, and 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 the num and there's more and more numbers all the time. And and that it's as far from humanity and a, and a humane approach to, uh, to to justice as you could get, really. I mean, you know, when the, the American system would have people shuffling around in orange suits with chains every time they leave, you know, their cell and so on. I mean, that takes it to a whole new level. And some of our prisons are not far away from that. And, I, and I, I've been into them. Um, but, but you know, that's, the, that's where we're going to end up if we carry on the way we are. We're going to end up with mass incarceration on the American model. And that's where we will end up. And if we do... Britain, which is a country I still have faith in, remarkably, given the observations I make about many bits of it in the book, but it's still a country that I have huge faith in our people, our society, our history, our culture. I think we are, broadly speaking, a really decent society, but we are making, we are, we are going wrong in so many ways. And, and the criminal justice system, as it, as it, as it, you know, it inevitably moves towards the American model. And as more and more politicians start saying, you know, let's just lock them up. And we've just had another white paper with yet more sentence increases in the last week or so, more prison building, more prison places. You know, if someone doesn't scream like a canary in a mine, I know canaries don't scream, but you know what I mean? Um, then, you know, the mine's going to blow up. And, and, and I'm afraid it's already in the early stages of its explosion, as far as I'm concerned. Well, on that happy note, we must heed those warnings. So, Crystal, thank you so much for talking to me. You're welcome. Thanks for the time. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also, rate, review, and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 